0: Hello and welcome to the Ashi podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the Ashi podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with Ashi. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and of course to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Welcome back to the Ashy Podcast. It's thrilled to be here with you again today. I'm here with Deputy Editor Priya Nori. I'm back in the uh, in the recording booth here when we have some really impressive guests. We're really excited to, um, to introduce to you. We have Dr. Allison Freifeld and Ali S. both from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Let's start with the bios, and I'll start first. Dr. Allison Freifeld is an emeritus professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the University of Nebraska Medical Center for over 35 years of her prof- professional career has been devoted to oncologic and solid organ transplant patients. After medical school and internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Freifeld completed her ID fellowship at the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease under Tony Fauci. She served as the chief of clinical infectious disease at the National Cancer Institute for nine years. At NCI, her pivotal work on oral antibiotic management of febrile neutropenia has improved the lives of innumerable patients undergoing cancer chemotherapy. In 2000, she joined the University of Nebraska faculty where she helped create national guidance for the care of immunocompromised patients, leading to the IDSA 2010 Clinical Practice Guideline for the Use of Antimicrobial Agents in Neutropenic Patients with Cancer. She also chaired the NCC, which is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, Infections and Cancer Patient Guidelines for many years. Dr. Freifeld has authored more than 120 academic publications and has lectured widely on these topics. Climate Change Advocacy in Healthcare is a new field for Dr. Freifeld one she hopes that she will inspire others. Currently, she serves on the Executive Sustainability council for UNMC and is a Nebraska State Trustee of the Nature Conservancy. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you.
2: Okay. We also have Dr. Ali Eskhan, who is originally from Brooklyn, New York. He's a former Assistant Surgeon General and is current Dean of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, College of Public Health. His professional career has focused on emerging infectious diseases, bioterrorism, and global health security. He served at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 23 years after joining in 1991 as an EIS officer. He served as the CDC's director of the Office of Public Health Preparedness and Response, where he led the response to numerous high profile domestic and international public health emergencies like Ebola, avian influenza, SARS. The Asian Tsunami, and Hurricane Katrina. In 1999, Dr. Kahn served as one of the main architects of the CDC's Public Health Bioterrorism Preparedness Program. He founded the Public Health Matters blog and co-founded a novel center at the CDC to champion a One Health strategy to ensure health security from zoonotic, vector-borne, and food-borne infectious diseases. More recently, it is focused on better integration of public health and healthcare for Disease Prevention, Reducing Health Inequities and Social Determinants of Health. He has more than 150 peer-reviewed publications, textbook chapters, editorials, brief communiques. He has consulted extensively for multiple US organizations, including the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and numerous ministries of health, and the World Health Organization. Welcome to you both. Great to have you this morning.
3: It's a delight.
2: So to kick things off, our first question, uh, is as follows. You have very different careers in medicine. How did you end up collaborating on the climate crisis and its impacts on healthcare? Can you also briefly describe these negative impacts for our audience as you've beautifully laid out in figure one of your article?
1: Well, thanks for having us, Dr. Nori and Dr. Bierman. It's uh, really a great pleasure. And that is a great question. The The answer Uh, makes a very important point, and that is that climate change is everyone's concern, regardless of who we are. So while Dr. Khan and I have very different backgrounds and career paths, we've found common ground in thinking about the bi-directional relationship between the healthcare industry and climate change. It's really important for all healthcare professionals to understand that they have a stake in this crisis. So I think that climate change fits very naturally into the realm of public health because its impacts are largely seen through the lens of population effects. So, for example, the WHO um, has indicated that well over 95 percent of people on Earth breathe air of poor quality, and that in turn is linked to rising rates of cardiovascular and pulmonary uh, diseases, amongst other ill effects. Uh, Climate change is yielding unprecedented heat and rainfall, regional droughts, uh, severe life threatening storms, and all of these have a huge impact on human populations. And these are illustrated in that figure that you referred to in our review, and it actually comes from the National Center for Environmental Health at the CDC. Um, And the figure shows these concentric rings of cause and effect of climate on human health. And in the center, There are four uh, climate change sources of those effects, and uh, first is the well-described increase in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas levels that largely resulted from burning fossil fuels. And those greenhouse gas accumulations have led to rising earth surface and ocean temperatures, and that in turn is causing rising sea levels and uh, extreme weather events globally at an increased rate. So those four things take us to the next concentric circle where we see the effects um, kind of amplified. And and, um, those include air pollution and environmental degradation, especially things like deforestation, uh, floods, droughts, extreme heat, limitations of food and water quality and supply, and then, of course, changes in vector ecology. These are kind of the ripple effects. And then in the outer ring are all the consequences of these dramatic changes in nature that are harmful to human health. And so those would include um, rising frequency of heat-related illness, cardiovascular and pulmonary diseases, as we've mentioned, and significantly increased deaths due to those things. But we are also seeing increased incidence of infections like malaria, dengue, Lyme, tick one diseases, West Nile. Um, waterborne diseases like cholera and outbreaks are occurring uh of these infections outside of the regions that are their traditional geographic limits so um we need to be aware of the fact that there are you know not the the usual diseases in the usual places any longer uh with climate change and then of course heat drought flooding, malnutrition due to crop failures, diarrheal diseases, these are all forces that contribute to increasing economic stability, instability, mass migrations, and civil unrest. So clearly, these kind of climate consequences are spiraling us quickly uh, to a dramatically less healthy and more unstable world. But I, I just want to quickly return to your original uh, question, because I said uh, that The uh, climate uh, crisis has led to much more um, epidemiologic effects in human populations, um, which is a natural extension of public health work. But clinicians like myself and my colleagues in hospital and clinic services are not often as attuned to this big population frame of mind. We're much more intensely focused on individual patients in our daily work. But I'd argue that really, we are all public health practitioners in this crisis, and that our concerns shouldn't be limited to the walls of our hospitals and clinics. So we need to to really embrace our roles in in community health as well. Um, And as we learn more about the detrimental effects of climate change on our patients and communities, we as clinicians should be climate champions. And there are a lot of great resources out there to help us do that.
0: It's wonderful. It's really a call to action, uh, what gets your, your, your concluding comment there. And for our readers and listeners, I do want to point out the title of the manuscript that we're exploring by way of our guests. It's their published manuscript in ASHI. It's titled The Climate Crisis in Healthcare. What Do Infection Prevention and Antimicrobial Stewardship Professionals Need to Know? It was published on August 2nd, 2023, available to anyone, open access via the ASHI website. So please check it out. Please read and please share.
3: We may change gears and go to Dr. Kahn. Could we do that, sir? Back absolutely, absolutely. And I'm I'm delighted that Shay is taking a leadership role uh, in thinking about the intersection between climate change uh, and healthcare systems. Um, so while uh, Dr. Freifeld is an esteemed clinician um, and also on our sustainability council, I come from this from originally from a public health standpoint, uh, probably towards the turn of this uh, century uh, when at CDC we started noticing that a number of our vector-borne diseases, Lyme disease, a number of the viral encephalitis were in places where they weren't supposed to be. Uh, And it's a clear effect of uh, climate change more pronounced now as we think about, uh, you know, dengue and malaria in the United States, now endemic disease uh, cases uh, in the United States. So that's how I got into this work. uh, And that continued as I transitioned Um, about 10 years ago uh, as dean of the College of Public Health, uh, where I think of it from a local, regional, national, and global perspective. Uh, And I also sit on our uh, amazing health system, Nebraska Medicine Sustainability uh, Council. So I think about it uh, very much from a healthcare perspective is how do we ensure sustainability? That's wonderful. With that in mind, tell us about the impact you think climate crisis will have
0: on AMR and healthcare-associated infections. What should we know as readers of Ashen?
3: Glad to. So um, as you heard from Dr. Freifeld, and I'm sure everybody on this podcast recognizes, you know, climate change is not weather, right? Climate change is sort of this long-term alterations in our Earth's climate patterns, predominantly from shifts in temperature and weather conditions. Uh, The primary driver of climate change as we know it today uh, is the rapid increase in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere Mainly from human activities such as burning of fossil fuels, Uh, pretty uh, undebatable at this point on what's happening. Uh, Now, I know lots of people like to focus on thresholds. I don't like thresholds. You know, we talk about the two two degree Celsius or three point six degree Fahrenheit um, uh, threshold around with the Paris Agreement as you know this is critical threshold that's going to lead to people worldwide facing these multiple impacts of climate change simultaneously that's detrimental to um, health. But the reason I don't like thresholds is that I think it takes you away from the fact that climate change is now, today and ongoing been an ongoing process since the 1880s, right? And so it's not like all of a sudden something's going to happen when we reach 1.5 or 2 or 2.5 degrees. Just things are just going to get worse as we continue to get warmer, warmer, and warmer. And so we see today, right, these effects of air pollution, you know, more likely to cause respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, asthma, allergies, cancers. I mean, these are happening now. Uh, We saw it this summer, uh, boy, the, the heat waves that we saw this summer that you know, can cause dehydration, heat exhaustion, heat stroke and breath. Um, And then the alterations of vector-borne um, and other waterborne diseases uh, has temperature uh, and precipitation um, changes. So this sort of gives you a sense of the way we're thinking about it. Let me give you a couple of more examples. Uh, so we're seeing a lo- massive increase in cholera worldwide. Currently. And there's no doubt that cholera is really associated with flooding, monsoons, and cyclones, right? Lots of things that do with water and, and extreme, extreme weather events um, that impact, that are impacting people um, across the world uh, right now, Asia and Southeast Asia and Africa uh, mainly. Uh, so it's these weather patterns really do have major impacts on where these vectors are um, and their hosts. And then what that impact can potentially be on us. And then obviously the related antimicrobial resistance patterns that you would see the emerging infections, you would see the acquired, the healthcare acquired um, infections you could see. I also want to remind people from a health systems standpoint, right? Is that these extreme weather events uh, make health systems vulnerable uh, themselves who can increase healthcare acquired infections and patient safety issues. Uh, I'm thinking now. To um, we were having an earlier conversation of who's from Brooklyn and who's in the Bronx. But when uh, the Hurricane Sandy flew, you know, came up through the East Coast, and people who had generators on the, you know, in the basement and the first floor were already f- were flooded. And that, you know, nobody's going to tell me that had no patient impact when you had no power uh, within your facility, right? Uh, so clearly, there's patient safety issues around making sure that we have a resilient uh, healthcare care uh, system. So just some ideas, I can go on and on, and I'm sure we'll get some time to chat, chat about it, but lots of ways that climate change has direct impacts on our healthcare systems.
0: We love your advocacy and passion, definitely. Dr. Nori.
2: Okay, so our next question pertains to healthcare's contribution to the carbon footprint of um, the current modern era. So Dr. Freifeld, your article describes this in detail. You go through three domains, health systems, assessment, preparation for public health emergencies, and strategic partnerships. Can you describe these for our listeners and readers in terms of like how these can specifically address healthcare's contribution to all this?
1: Yes, uh, that's an important question as well. And really important, I think, for all of us in healthcare, because we know that in the United States, the healthcare sector contributes at least 8.5%, maybe more, of all greenhouse gas emissions. That's 8.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. It's un- incredible. Um, so if the healthcare sector was a country, we'd be the fifth largest emitter on the planet. That's huge. And we know that these emissions and pollutants that, that we put out correlate with a disease burden for our population um, that can be measured in disability-adjusted life years. And so it's estimated that the U.S. healthcare industry is respons- responsible for a loss of, of about 400,000 dailies annually. That's enormous. And it's it's... It's amazing uh, how large a loss of life that is for an industry that purports to save lives. So that's that's really the challenge that we need to deal with. Our task so here is to actively intervene, to reduce those greenhouse gases for which we as a sector uh, are responsible. So about half of those um, emissions are due to energy use and facilities, things like boilers and furnaces, uh, heating and cooling systems. That's the stuff that physicians really don't care to think about very much, Um, but we may have to start thinking about it in the future. But there's another big chunk of our footprint that comes directly, but rather indirectly, from supply chains. Again, not something we think about that much as physicians, but it's time for us to take an active stance, and that is to think about where our goods and materials in medical care are coming from. Uh, We can have a fair amount of influence over those goods uh, and items. So by directing procurement decisions toward less carbon-intensive supplies or by reducing the use of harmful agents, we can make a difference. So a great example of this is the use of dysfluorine gas in anesthesia. So desflurane is one of the most utilized inhaled anesthetics. Um, it is approximately 50 times the global warming impact than other anesthetic gases. It's, it's really detrimental uh, to the atmosphere. So for example, one hour of desflurane use has about the same environmental impact as driving 155 miles in a, a routine gas engine car and cost $12 for an hour. doesn't sound very expensive, but there's another commonly inhaled anesthetic, several fluorine, which in the same manner is like driving three miles at a cost of $3. So at UNMC several years ago, our anesthesia department switched out desfluorine for the cheaper and less environmentally harmful agent uh, and we we saw tremendous cost savings and a reduction, we presume, in greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a win-win situation for our institution uh, and our patients. So these are the types of opportunities that take the imagination and teamwork at a given institution. And it really starts with a multidisciplinary team to conduct regular health assessments, health systems assessments with several goals in mind and Uh, The first would be to assess the climate threats to the system. And those are things that Dr. Khan alluded to, things like severe weather or heat waves or even an infection outbreak. Is your system resilient enough? And does it have um, processes, procedures in place to uh, continue the normal uh, delivery of healthcare during a crisis? And they want to, you know, they should be able to ensure that Appropriate responses and lines of communication are in place just to maintain that basic healthcare delivery uh, and uh, contribute to public safety in the event of a crisis. So that's an adaptation response. But there's a second goal uh, for a multidisciplinary team to to address, and that's analyzing how each healthcare system individually can reduce its own big carbon footprint. So the desflurring example is small, but it's an important intervention. And we, but we really need to tackle big things such as electrification of our facilities. So we get away from burning fossil fuels as energy sources, um, water conservation within the facility, uh, and of course, waste reduction. So these are big changes that um, would be ways to mitigate the harms of climate change. So these activities should include representation from all Um, sectors of the healthcare facility, from the administration to the healthcare uh, providers uh, to the facilities management teams. And so I think this is an opportunity for um, infection control practitioners to really take a lead and and kind of start things rolling um, in their own institutions. But I wanted to comment on that third strategy, which is an effort to establish partnerships and collaborations with entities outside of the institution. And that would include the health departments and local emergency infrastructure services. um, And to work with your local city or town uh, or county administration to develop comprehensive plans that would seriously uh, tackle adaptation and mitigation uh, plans. So, in that sense, again, the medical institution can be a centerpiece of that work, and um, I urge all of us to um, step up to that uh, that task.
3: If I could add to that uh, response, uh, this is based on uh, the recent National Climate Change Assessment, the fifth assessment that I helped co with a thousand other wonderful people and uh, reviewers. And that was the cost component. So in case anybody missed it, right? Uh, Dr. Freifeld gave an example of where a change not just uh, um, was better for the environment, from a climate change perspective, but it saved money, and there are numerous examples along those lines that a climate forward approach actually can be a can also be a cost savings approach for a healthcare systems.
0: And it's probably a very important argument, right? It's not only the right thing to do for the climate, but it also saves cost, which would probably resonate with administrators. We hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> Bottom. Line. Absolutely. So Dr. Khan, let's go back to you for a moment. You're a man who wears many hats. And one of them is a public health dean at the School of of Public Health at UNMC. Is that correct?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Best job I've ever had. I whistle to work every day.
0: Fantastic. Love it. So with that in mind, you must spend a lot of time approaching challenges from a One Health perspective. Can you describe how the One Health approach can be applied to addressing the climate crisis and how it applies to our discussion today?
3: Oh, absolutely. So the One Health approach... Uh, is really highlights and showcases the interconnectedness between animals, humans, and the environment. Uh, And usually we look at these links to better understand disease and disease within our communities. But for me, from my perspective, it's actually a solution set. It's a way to approach what's going on uh, in our world with a broader set of tools of what changes can you make in, not just in humans but in an animal situation ag- including agriculture obviously um, and from an environmental standpoint so i see one health as a solution set for me and so when we think about mitigating what's going on uh with global warming uh in thinking about that solution set between humans animals and the environment you know so we can switch to renewable energy sources right as humans whether that's solar wind hydro power which emit greenhouse gases we can decrease waste we can we can decarbonize our supply chains we can green our operating rooms as we just heard uh from an animal agricultural standpoint we can switch to plant-based diets for healthier foods for ourselves and our patients uh given the f- impact of agriculture on um Climate change, um, and we can from envi- and then obviously from an environmental standpoint, it, the decarbonization helps from the decar the environmental st- standpoint, but also deforestation. Uh, you know, we can uh, um, reduce deforestation, right? So here's a bunch of strategies to mitigate those. Uh, the same thing's true. You know, we usually talk about mitigation and adaptation, or Adaptation or resilience, depending on which word uh, you like better. And again, you can look at solutions in all three of those sets to say, okay, this is how we can go forward to try to mitigate what the impacts are of climate change within our communities. Building, you know, the obvious one is building resilient infrastructure uh, and settlements, including our healthcare uh, systems, developing climate smart agricultural and forestry uh, options, conserving and destroying our ecosystems and biodiversity. And then, obviously, we must, at the health care center, integrate it with local and state public health, think about what are our uh, disaster management and early warning systems to help protect our patients.
2: Hey, thank you for that uh, explanation. That was really uh, superbly done. Dr. Freifeld, um, next question is for you. So, in your article, you mentioned the HHS Healthcare Sector Climate Pledge, and the Practice Green Health Organization. Do you recommend all hospitals take this pledge? And in the next five or so years, do you think all hospitals will be required to implement programs to reduce their carbon footprint, similar to what uh, you have already participated in at UNMC? Yes,
1: uh, I think this is an important a step forward, taking the HHS HHS, uh, Healthcare Climate uh, Pledge. And that came out, I think, in the spring of 2021. And it was really a signal to the healthcare industry that the federal government takes this very seriously and acknowledges this huge carbon footprint um, generated by the healthcare industry. So we as healthcare institutions are called to begin addressing uh, seriously uh, our footprint, and specifically signers uh, to this healthcare pledge, and it was voluntary, of course, but they committed to three things. Um, First, at minimum, reduce organizational emissions by 50% by 2030, Um, then also to achieve net zero by 2050. Um, publicly accounting for progress on this goal each year. So they had to produce a a document saying that they were reaching those goals. Um, Second was to design an executive level uh, lead or committee for this work on reducing emissions. And that had to be put in place by the end of 2023. And of course, as Dr. Khan said, we have an Executive Sustainability Council, which we've had for at least a decade at UNMC. But I think other institutions have certainly um, established those as well and should establish them. We talked about this in terms of a multidisciplinary committee that can address the many sources of carbon emissions. Um, they also were meant, to, uh, the signers of the pledge were meant to conduct an inventory of what is called scope three, which is really the supply chain emissions uh, for their institution by the end of 2024. And then finally, to develop and release a climate resilience plan for continuous operations um, of healthcare care services uh, during, you know, weather-related or other climate crisis-related uh, problems by the end of 2023. So these are three things that we have either accomplished or are on our way to, to getting done, again, voluntarily. And Uh, we were probably one of over well over 100 institutions to sign this pledge. I'm doubting that it's going to be reissued. It was reissued um, in 2023 in the spring. But since there are time limits on what's needing to be achieved, I don't think that it's going to be uh, reissued. But I think it's a call to action uh, and a movement toward more formalized mandates that are going to be coming. So, For example, the Joint Commission has developed a new voluntary sustainable healthcare certification, um, the the SHC program that will be effective January 1st, 2024. Um, And it's a certification program that evaluates whether hospitals, including critical access hospitals, have put in place key structures and processes to improve energy efficiency. Again, voluntary. Um, but there's sort of pushing hospitals to decrease their carbon footprint, decrease waste, and um, this will result in a certification um, so that uh, these hospitals can identify environmental sustainability and decarbonization as a strategic priority and allocate resources uh, needed to achieve and sustain those goals. Um, to improve their environmental footprint by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so they are being kind of pushed into um, measuring their greenhouse gas emissions and developing goals and action plans to reduce those emissions. Again, um, this I think is a step toward what we will see in the future, which may be uh, mandates to, to hospitals to do these activities. So a recent Annals of Internal Medicine editorial said, uh, quote, standardized, transparent reporting of greenhouse gas emissions is essential to ensure accountability. Without quantitative, verified, and published information, there's no way to mark progress, elucidate best practices, hold entities to account, or eliminate greenwashing. And so I think that uh, is kind of taking direct aim at hospitals and and healthcare systems uh, to hold them to account on their decarbonization work. Um, and this is going to be something that we see uh, coming toward us in the future. I, I again, want to emphasize um, the practice green health organization that really exists to assist hospitals in making those changes. It's a terrific resource uh, for instructions about calculating uh, carbon footprints of a healthcare system and for starting that decarbonization process. But I agree with Dr. Kahn. I think Shea and other organizations can really help prepare us for this engagement um, and these tasks before us.
0: So this decarbonization process, is that something you see on the horizon in the next five years, 10 years, or do you anticipate a more aggressive timeline?
1: Oh, I do think it's going to happen in the next five years. Um, I think it's so imperative Um, You know, we we often refer to climate change as the climate crisis, and that really is true. Um, And I again think Dr. Khan hit the nail on the head by saying, you know, we've had these problems of greenhouse gas accumulations, air pollution for decades. It's been recognized that these are um, threats to human health and well-being. And you know, I guess I might, uh, I might be one who kind of embraces these uh these thresholds because i think they imply to us how dire the situation is um although i appreciate your your stance on that dr khan i think i'd i'd say yes we are heading for you know 2 degrees of uh of of increase and that's very worrisome there's a point at which there's no return so Um, I do think that these mandates are going to be coming down from the federal government, from the Joint Commission, um, (laughs) which probably has much more influence than the federal government uh, in this respect. Um, But I think it's important. So what is decarbonization? It's largely looking at these areas of supply chain, which we can have some influence on, and also electrification, getting away from fossil fuels, as um, the driver of all of our activities.
3: All right, so I I agree. I think we've already bought 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, of climate change. And uh, unless there are dramatic changes, we will likely pass the two degree um, uh, threshold. Uh, But there may be an external driver here for decarbonization besides doing the right thing, which is insurance costs. So if you look at what's going on um, in California and Florida, for example, a number of insurers are pulling out. I've been keeping track of what's going on globally with insurers. Um, And uh, hospitals may well see, depending on where they're located, increasing insurance costs to stay in business. So uh, there may be some external drivers here for decarbonization also, in addition to all the ones that already exist. So the drivers are
0: multiple, for really, for a problem that began with the Industrial Revolution, which is really coming to a head now, as what you're saying.
3: I Agree wholeheartedly, Gonzalo. Since you know, when we've seen, you know, without a doubt, you know, there's been a one degree Celsius increase since the 1880s. I say now we're pretty much at one point. At the last couple of uh, months, we've seen evidence of passing the 1.5 degrees threshold. Obviously, you don't you need years and years to say you've done it, but I think I think pretty much we've bought a 1.5 degrees uh, sure. increase at this point.
0: Yeah, for sure. sure. So let's talk about the meeting of the minds. Apparently, there's a big one going on right now in Dubai, the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference. And uh, so this for you, Dr. Khan, what do you think health systems or how do you think health systems can best engage governments in this climate change crisis and climate change discussion?
3: So for me, it's a combination of example and leadership uh, that our health systems can play as we think about, Uh, leveraging our purchasing power that health systems have uh, to ensure carbon neutral processes and our supply chain. So, uh, and I also, I always start, I know we talk about governments at a national level and global level. I always start my community, like what can a health system do within its community, within the state, within the region? And then, you know, cascading up from there, you know, how do they show best practices and innovation around climate resilience and low carbon performance right they can and we do it here in our health system and we're just one of many that are already thinking about you know how do we showcase energy efficiency how we're using climate smart uh, technologies o- often very very cost saving approaches for health systems i want to i want to hit that one more time i know I, because i given your broad audience for this podcast you can save money while you're while you're doing this and then the leadership role in this sort of cross-sector engagement uh, and um, involvement of these stakeholders as you think about what a holistic approach is to address co- climate change within your communities you know so this is you know food water uh disaster social justice all of that the health sector really has an opportunity to play a leadership role in bringing these sectors together and saying how do we address climate change in our local communities and then that obviously then scales up at the state and national level you know focus on your state adopting a climate action plan if it already doesn't have one right you can you can be the model and you can be the driver for that finally you know health systems um given even all the, what that that has happened you know health systems are a source of scientific credibility for health and 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 i think they can claim the moral high ground for saying that they are the best advocates uh, for health and saving lives within this community, within our communities that allows them to really advocate for strong coalitions around climate change policies that protect health, right? So I think health systems have been a really large role that they can play in a large leadership role they can play in addition to as I already as I started with, they need to step up and do it themselves, right? Not just talk about it. you got to walk the dock, right? And say, this is what we're doing within our health system. You can do this also across the communities. That's wonderful. I love the message. You know, save health systems being very credible,
0: number one, with the subtext of you can save the planet and save lives and save money while doing it, right? Save Absolutely. Money. That's very important. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Uh, so let's like transition to Priya. And wrap us up. Okay. Great. Take it away.
2: Great. Thank you. So, in our last few minutes, I wanted to ask you both about uh, a silver lining or what you're optimistic about, if anything.
3: I'll give you uh, the bias that everybody knows about me, Priya, which is I walk around with rose-colored glasses, uh, and so I always start with optimism. Uh, and there's lots of reasons to be optimistic, right? So the U.S. greenhouse gases have dropped 17% from 2005 to 2021. Uh, the cost of those solar panels, I remember going from, oh my gosh, we can't afford these solar panels to now, I, I, and you know, the wind turbines, I think those have dropped over like 70 or 80% uh, over the last decade or so as people have thought through how to manufacture them better. And so I think we're getting closer and closer to thinking about what So carbon neutral energy really being very cost efficient, especially if you think about the true cost of fossil fuels and all the damage they do within our communities, which is not sort of factored in when people think about, you know, the price at the price at the pump uh, electric vehicles are uh, exploding within our communities lots more manufacturers with electric electric vehicles i believe we've sold 50% more this year than we did in the last couple of years and here in nebraska you know we're tripling uh, energy generation uh, from clean energy our local tribes are involved uh, in making uh, making that happen so lots of great news uh, in the climate space uh, and why do i turn that over then to dr Freifeld?
1: Well, I I think that uh, you are somebody who always is an optimist and wears rose-colored glasses, and I'm not. Um, But having said that, uh, I also feel quite optimistic at this point, which is a lot for me. Um, And I think there are three things that that give me reason for looking at this um, with some uh, brighter uh, outlook. And that is that global momentum has really skyrocketed, both in government and business sectors, as well as in public spheres in the last few years. Um, And I think there are are these three reasons uh, that I uh, would cite. And the first is technology. As you've said, renewable energy has really taken hold um, in the global sphere. The generation, the power generation mix is forecast to rise from 29% renewables in 2022 to 35% by 2025. So that's huge. And in the United States, uh, we now supply about a quarter of our electricity uh, through renewable uh, sources, wind and solar primarily. And by 2030, it's projected to be 80 to 90%. That's incredible. So um, so we're really seeing this energy transition underway. It's happening right now. Um, I don't think it gets enough attention, um, but there's a lot of investment in renewables. And that brings me to the second reason for optimism, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. It really propelled... Uh, rapid, positive change. And it's going to go on uh, for another eight or nine years. Uh, but since the IRA passed, uh, the United States has seen at least $150 billion in private investments for utility scale power, clean power. And that's more than in the last five years combined. It's incredible uh, how much is being invested by the the business community. Um, which really is the source of tremendous technology in uh, clean energy. And these investments put us on track to support millions of jobs, clean our air, um, and power our homes, most American homes, by 2030, Um, especially if we keep putting emphasis on these policies for trade and permitting reform uh, and taxes to be devoted um, toward this whole enterprise. So recent analysis suggests that the IRA can nearly have U.S. emissions by 2035 um, and significantly reduce uh, customer costs. And the the other thing that I think is really uh, giving me great hope is that climate justice solutions are baked into the IRA. Uh, so this funding um, basically includes about 40% of all the federal monies Linked to reducing the disproportionate impacts of climate change on low income and BIPOC communities. These are the people and places that are least responsible for the climate crisis and yet have the greatest impacts. And so that direction of funding and acknowledgement that we have to support those communities primarily in this fight is really heartening. So, uh, those are my reasons for. Thinking that this is, is really a tremendous trajectory and we can all be part of it.
0: Wow, you've given us really a master class in like forty-five minutes. This is impressive. We have to re- listen to this a couple of times just to absorb all the nuggets and the details. Fantastic. Thank you so much to Dr. Allison Freifeld and Ali Khan for joining us on the Ashley podcast, where they ex- discussed and explored the themes related to their paper pl- published in August 2023, titled The Climate Crisis and Healthcare. What do infection prevention and stewardship professionals need to know? This is fully open access on the ASHEW website. During this very engaging discussion, we explored carbon impact in healthcare, unhealthy supply chains, health systems, assessments, and decarbonization processes, which are likely forthcoming. We actually talked about JACO and how that may be a driver of decarbonization. News to me, maybe to some of the readers and listeners also. And then we actually, I think it would be safe to summarize that health systems can be credible Action or movers in, uh, in this climate crisis response, and that with that we can have an impact on saving lives, uh, certainly saving the planet, and most of all, or most importantly, for some, at least saving money. So thank you so much for joining us uh, for the Ashley podcast. If you like this uh, this content, please share it. Again, check out the referenced article, article we discussed. And to give you a sneak peek, in the next four to six weeks, we will have another article coming out, a career sp- perspective. From Dr. Mahmoud Bruda f- from the United Kingdom, he's at Brighton and uh, let's see, Brighton and Sussex Medical School, talking about su- um, unhealthy supply chains, which kind of dovetails into this discussion. Expect to see more about that on social media. Thank you to Dr. Nori for joining me as my co-host, and thank you again to our super, super important and super engaging discussants, Dr. Khan and Dr. Freifeld.